Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. This is the third podcast in a trilogy of coronavirus-related podcasts. Today's podcast topic is going to be a COVID-19 vaccine. Is it possible in the near future? Before we get into all that, I'd love my listeners to think about this. I know we all kind of feel the same way. Is to remember this statement by researchers John and Peter Medmere. A virus is simply a piece of bad news wrapped in a protein. And that's how I think we all feel. This thing is a lot of bad news. I am so fortunate today, though, and I think my listeners will be also, to have Paul Offit back on the podcast. I can't tell you how exciting it is to say back on the podcast. For my loyal listeners, they they recall Dr. Offit was on my podcast last year to discuss the resurgence of measles, and he discussed the importance of vaccination. Dr. Offit is so uniquely qualified to discuss the possibility of a vaccine for COVID-19. He is the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania. He is also a world-class researcher on vaccines in his own right, having co-invented the rotavirus vaccine. And to me, more importantly, he's a true student of history of immunology and vaccines. And on top of that, the benefit to my listeners, Dr. Offit is a straight shooter. He will tell you his best assessment in plain terms that you will understand and I will understand, not with too much scientific rigmarole. So again, it's with my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Paul Offit back to this podcast. Thanks, Steve. Okay. So Dr. Offit, you have written one of my favorite books on the history of immunology and vaccinations, Vaccinated. But my first question to you right off the bat, where is our next Louis Pasteur? Where's our next Jonah Falk? Where's our next Maurice Hillman or Paul Hoffman? Where is our next hero who's going to save the day coming from? I don't know. It's a great question. I mean, when Jonas Salk made his, his polio vaccine, you could be a vaccine hero. Yeah. You know, these days, it's a little harder to be a hero. I mean, the human papillomavirus vaccine has the capacity to prevent 30,000 cases of cancer a year in the United States and 5,000 deaths. I think it's the rare person who could tell you the force behind that vaccine. It's just a different time. I, I think we don't see scientists as heroes in the same manner that we used to. Okay. Well, you know, what I found interesting, especially in your book, were they just lucky? I mean, when Louis Pasteur came up with the vaccine for rabies, he crushed, I believe you mentioned in your book, the spines of these rabid dogs and came up with the, the vaccine. I mean, I'm sure he didn't even have rubber gloves back then. <laughs> And obviously they used like some form of killed virus, which we'll get into, but was, was he just lucky? I mean, then it, it treated an active patient, what I recall also, somebody who had been bitten by a rabid dog and supposedly cured him. So was it just a little bit of pure luck or something else? I think it's trial and error and, and for a disease that was uniformly fatal. I mean, if you had to ask, answer the question, what is the most 
fatal of the infectious disease, it's rabies. If you develop signs and symptoms of rabies, if you've been bitten by an animal, you're dead. There is no way to save you. You are a dead person. So what he did was he, he, so dogs were rabid, sort of typically wandering the streets of Paris and would die. So he took one of those rabid dogs and then he sort of took the brain, just you said, and the spinal cord crushed it up, inoculated it into a rabbit and found that the rabbit also got rabies and died. So what he then did was he sort of took the spinal cords and, and dried them out for like right. 14 days. And this is a, a virus which was susceptible to drying. He, he didn't know this. I mean, it's all, it's all trial and error. And then he dried it out for shorter and shorter periods of time. And that's what he gave to this boy, Joseph Meister, who had been bitten by a rabid dog and saved his life. It's the first time ever that anybody could show that you could save someone's life. Now, he hadn't developed symptoms yet. The good news is rabies has a long incubation period, on average, about two months, actually. So there's time to develop an immune response before you develop symptoms of rabies. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's amazing how bold these experiments were back then. You know, it's just uh, the kind of stuff you have a little trouble getting through institutional review boards today. Yeah, exactly. He just, right. He just went ahead and did it. He was Louis Pasteur. He wasn't even a doctor. <laughs> he was a chemist. I remember reading in organic chemistry. Yeah, you know, he was a mediocre student at the uh, Sorbonne Institute. And, and what about Maurice Hillman, one of your heroes? You know, I, I love in, in your book how you, you depict how his daughter, Jerry Lynn, came home and had the mumps, and he ran to the, uh, the lab and came back with some swabs and swabbed her, her, her throat. And, but it took him like three more years to develop that vaccine. What happened in that interim? No, it's funny. The answer to the question, obviously now is we're sort of head over heels, break the glass, let's make a COVID vaccine now. Right. The question I've been asked by many reporters is, what's the fastest vaccine ever made? That was it. I mean, he really? isolated the virus from his daughter, Gerald Lynn, in 1963. So he has the strain in 1963. That was a commercial product in 1967, only four years. It's amazing to me that anyone can make a vaccine that fast. I mean, now when people talk about trying to make a vaccine in 18 months, it's like trying to imagine a fifth dimension. It's just hard to wow. imagine all this. Yeah, so I, I thought we'd be you know, hit with some somber realities here. And, and what about Jonas Salk? I mean, again, a little bit before my time, I know in my dad's time, they would, they would talk about how fearful they were, and I guess especially in the summer months of contracting polio. But, you know, the nation didn't shut down then, right? I mean, it, it kept going. I mean, even though, like, Franklin Roosevelt developed polio. What, what is the difference between now and polio? Because it wasn't respiratory. It was more... Right, you know, so polio is the summer intestinal virus that causes mild intestinal symptoms. And then occasionally, you know, roughly one per 200 people that get that virus will develop paralysis, including permanent paralysis and occasional death. People weren't sure how you got it. I mean, they knew that it had to do with, with sort of close contact in cities. It spread in some ways like norovirus. And, and so that was the birth of summer camps. I mean, people got out of the city. They went into New Hampshire, oh, and interesting. summer camps, all for the purpose of getting away from this plague. And it's interesting now that I've gotten a number of calls from camp uh, directors saying, you know, should we, what should we do about this? Which is interesting since actually that was the birth of camps, was getting out of the city to escape right. the plague. And now they're wondering whether they can do the same well, thing. Well, just though I got you on that, we would get some of this later on. What, what do you say to those camp directors who want to fill up their bunks? Well, I, I can say this. There, there's certainly no way to maintain social distancing in a camp. I mean, you can't play basketball and then try and keep people, you know, six feet apart in the cafeteria. You're either in or you're out. If you're going to have camp, realize that, you know, there may be infection. What I do say to them, though, is that this is children. So they're, they're less than 18 years of age. The chances that they're going to be hospitalized or killed by this virus are infinitesimally small. I, I think of the almost 70,000 people who have died in this country. I, I don't know if 10 
children have died of this virus. It's, That's remarkable in its own right, really. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to get to that. I'm, I'm so that is so fascinating from so many immunological clinical points. But uh, we'll hold off on that to keep our listeners hanging on to this discussion. All right, let's move on to something that's a little more technical, but I, I think really important about the type of vaccines that are being investigated. And my, you know, my question to you is, you know, you know, in a sense, this is not you know, the scientific community's first rodeo with coronavirus. We've had the SARS epidemic, I guess we call it, and the MERS, which gave us a look at how dangerous a coronavirus can be. How come we weren't ready to essentially handle a variation of one of these viruses? What, what's your take? I mean, I'm sure they were working on it. I think they did it. Do they do a vaccine for one of them? Yeah, so SARS was the first, and years ago, it, it caused about 8,000 cases and 800 deaths. SARS is severe acute respiratory syndrome. It, it came out of Southeast Asia, specifically China, and is a bat coronavirus, very similar to the current coronavirus. So hence its name, SARS-CoV-1 or SARS-1. Right. The second was Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, that came out of Saudi Arabia. There was some camels were a host there. Was that, that also from bats to camels or something? In part. I think in part okay. bats. but. Okay. Um, and so here, th that virus caused about uh, 2,500 cases, 1,000 deaths, so it had a mortality rate of 30%. The first 10%, second 30%. These are high mortality rates. The, the good news, if there's any good news that comes from infectious diseases that can kill people, is that both of those viruses cause moderate to severe disease. There wasn't what you see here, which is sort of asymptomatic infection or mildly symptomatic infection. Everybody got sick, including very sick. So it's much easier to put a moat around them and quarantine them. And those were one-year deals. In both cases, there was an interest in vaccines and a commercial interest in vaccines. What happened was they only got so far animal model studies, early phase one studies, but when they disappeared after a year, there was no commercial interest in pursuing that. So both funding dried up. So it was right. about money, right? I mean, because well, you know, yeah. people have raised this issue that where it's so important, you know, with basic science, the NIH, probably even the CDC, why well, they need to be well funded and to fund scientists because. Even when these unusual things come up, you never know when you're going to have to go back to the uh, medical bag to come up with, you know, treatments, right? Yeah. I mean, I think I don't blame the companies for dropping it. It's a little hard to pursue something commercially when it costs hundreds of millions of dollars to develop it for a disease that's gone. You could argue, though, that the and there were certainly academic labs that continued to, to do but this. But they couldn't produce this on a mass that's right. There was no reason. Right. There's no reason. That's exactly yeah. right. But we did learn yeah, some things. That's what, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to somebody else today, too, about things. And, you know, I guess it's my mindset, you know, as a physician, even in my office, you know, I, I do, besides allergy, I do infectious disease, immunology, and allergy. And, you know, in my office, I have to be protected. God forbid I have a patient that has anaphylaxis. You know, I have to have those things and up and ready to be used. So, it's, you know, even in my small office, I have to be prepared. And I guess a lot of us like to think in deep in our heart, this whole thing with the government, that they have the money, the same way we do for the military, to have these resources, obviously besides PPE and everything else, that God forbid, you know, that rainy day comes that we're, we're prepared. I mean, I know we couldn't expect the scope of this. This was unheard of. I mean, I guess similar to, you know, the 1918 uh, pandemic, but... Uh, I think there were a couple of things. I mean, in 2005 when bird flu raised its head, so-called H5N1 virus, Tony Fauci put in place a pandemic preparedness program so that we could make masks quickly, we could make personal protective equipment quick, quickly, that we could command sort of through this Defense uh, Procurement Act, that we could command companies to make the things that we need, including vaccines. 
the, the current administration basically dissembled that, and that, yeah. that wasn't good. The second thing was China was not a good player here. I mean, you shouldn't have to have depended on a whistleblower in China to tell you that there was a virus that was circulating and killing people in Wuhan. They should have very quickly let the world know this was going on, provided the strain, and let us make a vaccine. On the other hand, the intelligence community in the United States consistently was telling the administration, this is a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem. And by mid-January, they were screaming it was a problem. But, you know, again, the administration ignored it and just sort of hoped it went away. Yeah. Let me ask you, too, just because we were talking about Louis Pasteur, and we're going to obviously fast forward to today, just so we can tell our listeners, you know, the different kind of variations of vaccinations. And uh, I, I find this fascinating myself. So the first, which I'll say is the, is the traditional type of vaccine, which is, is actually from a whole virus where it's been obviously killed or attenuated. Typical examples of that were the rabies vaccine we just talked about. Also, I think smallpox. And I think the Chinese company is working on one now. What, what's your opinion? What, do, you, do you think that has a potential using the traditional method of making a vaccine in this case? Because, you know, we're going to talk about the different types, but I just want from your perspective, we would think that would be the simplest one. Get a hold of this virus, just weaken it, I guess like we did for polio, or and then inject it into people. What's so hard about that? Yeah, we have no idea how to make this vaccine. And as a consequence, there are more than 70 companies that are making it. There are more than 100 different, basically, roughly, different vaccine ideas, some of which are variants of of the basic theme. But there's basically several basic themes. One, take a virus and kill it like you made the polio vaccine, hepatitis A vaccine, rabies vaccine, like you said. Two, take the virus and weaken it like the measles vaccine, the mumps vaccine, the German measles vaccine, the chicken virus. Quite nicely. (laughs) Take just part of the virus, the so-called subunit vaccine. Right, subunit. Which is the way the hepatitis B vaccine is made or the human papillomavirus vaccine is made. Take a vectored vaccine, which is to say, and this is Johnson Johnson is doing this, this UK group that can't get enough media attention out yeah, there. I see that. They're going to beat us on this, right? You know, okay. I, who the hell knows? I mean, they it's like science by press release. It's driving me crazy. Let's see some data, please. Yeah. How about a little humility? But so what they did was they take a weakened, in the case of the uh, UK group, they took a, a simian uh, adenovirus that's replication defective, so it doesn't reproduce itself well in people, and then clone into that the gene that codes for the surface protein. Then you have, it was just on CNN actually one hour ago, where there was a German company that basically uh, stated that they have an mRNA, messenger RNA vaccine. So messenger RNA, DNA vaccines, that's just has the genetics that then causes the body to make that surface protein, and then you make an immune response. Now, there's no commercial vaccines that are mRNA or DNA vaccines. So these are novel approaches for which there is no background information, which is why these things bother me. I mean, just the uh, person from the company who was talking about this vaccine, you know, just crowing about how well it's going to work. You don't know that. I mean, that's right. That's scary. That's why I have you on right now, because like I said, with all of these different approaches, the the stakes are too high. And as you know, too, like Moderna, which is one of the other groups, which got like $400 million to start mass producing. Hopefully they said, we're willing to take this bet, even if it doesn't work. The government, we're getting behind you. And it's a little bit scary. I don't think, because again, as you know, too, the the panacea is that, well, once we have a vaccine, life will go back to normal. And there's a lot of ifs here. And the reason I'm even bringing this up, because who knows, there may be several vaccines that come to market. And just like the flu vaccine, I think patients should be aware and the doctors of what you're giving a patient and why you decide to use that, you know, because they're there will be, I think, competition in this, and there won't be probably a true answer for several years. No, I think the history of medical breakthroughs is that nature gives up its secrets slowly and often with a human price. So 
be humble, take your time and get it right. Yeah. What do you think about something like, the, I think it was coming out of Germany that touting about using the BCG vaccine or some kind of derivative of it to stimulate the immunity as a bridge before any real vaccine. Does that make sense to you? So that notion has been around for a while. It's interesting it's Germany because Germany is the birth of this so-called power immunity. So for example, BCG vaccine, the oral polio vaccine, if you give the oral polio vaccine, you'll induce a specific immune response against polio, antibodies right. against polio. But you'll also induce sort of non-specific immune mediators like interferon, which as its name suggests, interferes with the ability of not just polio to infect cells, but really any virus to infect cells. So the thinking is let's boost interferon. That'll generally sort of protect you. I do think that the way out of this is not that. I think the way out of this is specific immunity that at least lasts for a few years which wouldn't be this. So I, I think that's the way, to, and we can make a vaccine. I really do think we can make a novel coronavirus vaccine. I just think it may not be this quick. And it worries me when you, when you have this break the glass mentality that you, know, that you may do things in a manner that doesn't ensure that this vaccine is as safe as possible, especially remembering it's going to be giving to a lot of people who are healthy young people who would not normally die of this virus. You know, those are two great points that I want to get to, really important points. You know, with vaccines, even like the flu, which is very tricky because there are years that we hear it works 30 percent of the time, other times maybe more, 70 percent of the time. I mean, I always get the flu vaccine. I think it's just a smart thing. But to the titers of antibodies, does that ever really give us an answer as far as somebody's immune? And I mean, I, I've been reading now, too. I don't remember this even ever being done. Like, will they have to not only give the vaccine, but then challenge the volunteers in the studies? having them actually exposed to the coronavirus to see it work? And, you know, how did they typically check that vaccines work? Did they just measure antibody response? Did they actually challenge patients, you know, in your knowledge from in the history of a lot of these vaccines? I would say at least half the vaccines that are currently licensed and used in the United States do not have a clear immunological correlative protection. You mm -hmm. would think that they would. I mean, I'm, you know, it's fortunate I get to it. yeah. be part of a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that, you know, that, developed the rotavirus vaccine, we did as a phase three trial, a placebo controlled prospective 70,000 child trial with four year, 11 country trial. We had serum on every one of those children. Some of the children got a vaccine and got sick. Others got a vaccine and didn't get sick. Some didn't get a vaccine and got sick. Others didn't get a vaccine mm -hmm. and didn't get sick. We had serum on every one of those children. You would think we would, because we knew who got sick and who didn't, that right. we'd be able to say, if you have this level of circulating antibodies, either binding antibodies or neutralizing antibodies, that that will correlate with protection. And it never did. And the reason is, is, is and it may be the same thing here too, rotaviruses are a mucosal infection, which is just like influenza, parainfluenza, respiratory syncytial virus, and coronavirus, they only reproduce themselves at the site of entry. You know, they, the virus in the bloodstream is not part of, of disease process. The virus traveling to sites distant to the site of entry is not part of the disease process. When that's true, generally you have immunity that's short-lived and incomplete, even from natural infection. So natural infection with rotavirus does not protect you from being reinfected or even mildly symptomatically reinfected. It protects you from moderate to severe disease. That also seems to be true for this virus as well. So you, you That's a very important point. Can you say that one more time? I, I think that's so important to listeners. I mean, it's a little startling even to me. So you're, if I'm saying this correctly, you're saying that whether you naturally get the coronavirus or maybe eventually when you get a vaccine, you can be reinfected by somebody else, but hopefully not get anything more than a mild symptoms. Right. And that's true for the mucosal viruses. And I'm counting coronavirus. Viruses. Yes. OK. But so you're also saying that the coronavirus also, let's say we're doing finger sticks now in patients to check for antibodies. 
that it's not really transmissible in the blood. We don't have to really worry. That's right. Yeah. Okay. That's really important one. I think because a lot of people are very afraid. I mean, I know patients, uh, nurses in my own staff, and I'm sure a lot of other workers. I mean, again, handling because this virus is so dangerous that again, you're doing this in doctors' offices. We're, of course, we're using the proper precautions, but again, you take a swab and you you have to be more careful with, right? Because it's not like you. Got, I mean, God forbid, even with that swabbling around on a countertop, that should go right away into medical waste disposal because that's transmissible. Obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Those are really important points. Let me ask you too, how worried or concerned are you about this term immune enhancement, you know, where actually giving the vaccine can make things worse? You know, I know there's only a couple of examples of like that in, with vaccines, but could that be like a, a curveball we don't really see coming? It, it, that's not the one I worry about. And I'll, I'll explain what that one, and then I'll tell you the one I'm worried about. Yeah. The, the so-called antibody dependent enhancement, it certainly was a phenomenon with dengue vaccine. But that's also a phenomenon with dengue anyway. So in other words, there's four different serotypes of dengue. If you're infected with serotype one, and then later you're infected with serotype two, you actually are much worse off than if you'd never been infected before. Mm -hmm. um, and so this so-called antibody-dependent enhancement, you have, you're much more likely to have so-called dengue hemorrhagic shock syndrome, which is as bad as it sounds, than if you'd never been infected before. So the dengue vaccine did the same thing. When children in the Philippines who got the dengue vaccine and then were challenged with just the natural virus that was circulating, did much worse than those who'd never gotten the vaccine. In fact, 14 children in the Philippines died from having gotten that vaccine and yeah, then being challenged with the virus. Yeah. In fact, the woman who was in charge of the trial, this Rose Capiting, who's a, just a pediatrician, and epidemiologist, was indicted for murder in the Philippines, who ran wow. that trial. Right, that's how right. I remember hearing about that, right. But that's dengue. I, I think what I would worry about more is what happened with the, the respiratory syncytial virus vaccine in the 1960s, what happened with a whole killed measles vaccine in 1963, which is you get that vaccine, in the case of RSV, both those vaccines were whole killed viruses. And then you're exposed to, to natural respiratory syncytial virus or natural measles. And the people who then were exposed did worse, were more likely to get pneumonia, more likely to be hospitalized than if they'd never been infected. The reason is- Yeah, what does that happen? The, I'll explain. So the yeah. reason that happened, I think, is that both of those viruses have a fusion protein. That's how the virus sort of attaches to infuse the cells. When you disrupt the fusion protein by killing the virus, you alter it critically, so you make sort of an aberrant immune response. And then when you're challenged with wild type or natural virus, you make an aberrant immune response virus, a dysfunctional immune response, one that doesn't really neutralize the virus and causes it to make to actually put you at greater risk. Coronavirus also has a fusion protein. So I think when you talk about inactivating the virus or even using a purified protein, you always worry that, you know, that, that you, you always, what you want is you want that virus protein on the surface, that spike protein that everybody's talking about all the time because that's the cell attachment protein. You want that, the immune system to see that in exactly the way it sees it during a natural infection. So therefore, a live attenuated virus is probably the most likely way to actually present that surface protein in a manner that it sees it in nature. Once you, you take it out of that, like with an mRNA approach or a DNA approach or a vectored vaccine mm. approach or even right. a whole-killed approach, you may alter it in a way that causes you to have an aberrant response, which was seen in animal model studies with SARS and MERS vaccines. That was seen. And it's, that was so-called vaccine-induced enhancement associated with kind of an eosinophilia and lung damage. So oh, basically, wow. you got a worse pneumonia if you'd gotten the vaccine than if you had in experimental animal models. Now, experimental animal models aren't people. As a friend of mine at Wistar says uh, regarding experimental animal models, mice lie and monkeys exaggerate. So you never know till you put it in people. But it was a little worrisome. And that's actually the one that worries me. 
again, I'm asking you to be the, the forecaster here. What, what do you think is going to maybe hopefully be the best bet, you know, to get the, the safest, hopefully the best efficacy and hopefully the speediest? What, what, what do you, you know, if uh, Wall Street pulls up Dr. Op and says, we got to place a big bet here, or if you get a call from the White House, we got to place a big bet here, billions and billions. <laughs> We, we, you know, not to put you on the spot too much, but where, where would you, uh, you know? Uh, well, actually, John King just asked me that question on CNN. Really? I've been put on the spot. <laughs> um, I'll tell him what I told. I'll tell you what I told him. I don't know. I really don't know. I, you don't, I, know, I, you, don't you don't have a. I mean, so what I, you I just said. I'm worried about those mRNA viruses. They sound so sophisticated, new age stuff, but it, it sounds like it's not going to deliver the real deal. You know, well, here's what doesn't worry about the mRNA. I mean, mRNA, I mean, we all have messenger RNA in our body, right? The right. DNA gets transcribed to, to messenger RNA, which is then translated to a protein. The good news about messenger RNA, it, it really degrades rapidly. So I, I don't worry about the mRNA itself being a, a problem because it will degrade rapidly. The problem, the bad news about mRNA is it degrades rapidly. So when you're trying to make a vaccine, you want to make sure that it's stable over fairly long periods of time right. at different right. temperatures. And it also, I think the mRNA vaccine will require a complex lipid delivery system. Um, this has a very long name, but um, that has never been mass produced in, to my knowledge. And I'm not so sure that's so easy. Well, well, I think people like the mRNA vaccine, and I think why Dr. Fauci likes the mRNA vaccine is you just have to synthesize it. It's very easy to make, and you can make large quantities of it easily. Um, I think that's why he liked that. And I think it will be safe. I just worry whether it would be effective. Hopefully we'll know. Yeah, uh, you know, that brings me to the next transition I want to make a little bit with you is that we are hearing that the race for defining the vaccine is being labeled as has a couple of really cool names, Project Warp Speed, Pandemic Speed, obviously with the the huge scope of this illness over the entire world, huge players, you know, philanthropists Bill and Melinda Gates, Michael Milken's Institute, they are pouring enormous sums of money through the private sector, with academic institutions, and in government to break all the red tape, speed this vaccine up to market. Do you see a problem in not doing, quote, business as usual in you know the stages of vaccine development that we can cut corners to get a, a faster product to market? I mean, it was, it was the old days, it was just, okay, we want to go through the FDA, let's do carefully the trials, then phase two, then three. And now everybody's saying, look, game on here. We don't have time, you know, for the usual academic, you know, all the hundred peer reviews. We got to get stuff to market, better to have something than nothing. What, what's your feeling in your, you know, your knowledge of the history of vaccinations and where we are right now? So, so what, what's happening now with Operation Warp Speed is that they're saying, okay, let's take Moderna, for example. Moderna has a messenger RNA vaccine. We're going to assume it works. We're going to, we don't know that. We don't, know whether it's safe. Like we don't know whether it's safe. Right. right. Mm -hmm. We're just going to assume that. So, so start mass producing. I would like to say that mass production is the hardest part of vaccines. Uh, in order to mass produce it, you have to have the right buffering agent, the right stabilizing agent, the right vial. You have to do real-time stability studies, and you have to show that you can consistently make it. And the history of vaccine problems is littered with tragedy associated with mass production. In fact, the first real pull mechanism, this is, this is not unprecedented. I mean, Operation Warp Speed 
is not unprecedented. In 1955, when Jonas Salk made his polio vaccine, there was a polio trial that was conducted by Thomas Francis at the University of Michigan, where 420,000 children got his inactivated polio vaccine, and 200,000 got saline control and saltwater control. That took about a year. During that time, five companies were paid to make that vaccine. Five companies. And, and so you didn't know whether it worked. You didn't know whether it was safe. You didn't know that. They just said the, the March of Dimes paid for that. So basically a private philanthropic organization paid for that and said, we're going to take the risk out of this for you, make it, and we'll pay you to make it whether it works or not. So it did work. And then those companies, you know, sort of put it out there. What happened was, was it was called the Cutter incident, but more fairly, it should have been called the scale-up incident. Cutter Laboratories, one of the five companies that made that vaccine, made it badly. And as a consequence, they didn't fully inactivate the polio virus. And as a consequence of that, 120,000 children were inoculated with live, fully virulent polio virus. 40,000 developed short-lived polio. About 200 were permanently paralyzed and 10 were killed. It was one of the worst, if not the worst, biological disaster in our country's history. And in that part, because we rush things. Yeah, I, that's why I don't want any. I don't want any vaccine coming out of China. <laughs> I like it on the good old USA. Yeah, no, this was this was right. the good old this was the good old USA. Per, yeah, per no, laboratories was right, no, well, yeah. We're not infallible either. You know, you you're right. You know, the point that you're making also. Bill Gates said because one of his biggest concerns, even if there's an effective vaccine, is that we won't have enough glass vials and stoppers to make the billions of doses needed. And he's a smart guy. I mean, we know it. He's like shocked sometimes. You thought he had an MD or PhD in uh, in epidemiology and stuff. He's a pretty smart guy. <laughs> no, he's. I, I met him once, and he was asking me questions. This was years ago about sort of vaccines and autism. Yes. And you know, I see. I, I saw saw him just as a tech guy. I didn't yeah. really see him as a biologist. And yeah. when I was answering his questions, I was giving him sort of broader general right. answers, but he just kept drilling down. Yeah. He wanted more and more of the science, more and more of the science. It was impressive. It was like feeding yeah. he, information into it. It was like feeding it into a computer. It was yeah. like a data generating. He's machine. amazing. I've read about him like on his treadmill every day. He's busy watching all the great courses and everything on every single topic you could imagine. So yeah, he'd be a pretty exciting guy to meet. You know, one of the things too, which people have brought up, do you think also there's this whole issue now of nationalism versus globalism? Like all the countries, whether it's England or China, everybody wants to be the first to come up with a successful vaccine. Do you think that's going to be detrimental in the sense they may not be sharing things and that may get in the way of cooperation? I don't think so. First of all, I think it's not going to be a vaccine. I think it's going to be several vaccines. I think many vaccines. I think we'll have several vaccines in this country. I think we shouldn't really talk about a coronavirus vaccine. I think it's going to be more than one. And I think also because we have 330 million people roughly in this country, that it would be unrealistic to expect that one company would be able to make enough vaccine for everybody. So I think we'll, we'll have a pretty good idea about safety before this vaccine is, is put into the arms of Americans. Um, I think we may not have quite the idea about efficacy until it gets out there. Okay. Um, I want to get to something else that you just wrote about in the New York Times op-ed last week, which I saw what you wrote about, it reminded me to give you a call. <laughs> so it spurred a good thing. And you, it was very interesting because you co-authored it with, uh, I think, uh, Dr. Rubin about the whole issue of crowding, density, and death rate. And uh, how really essentially, and I think people are getting this now, how being in crowds affects the spread and possibly even the death rate. And you brought up important observations that it's really densely crowded areas, you know, whether it's subways in New York City or even a meat packing plant in South Dakota. So it doesn't, it's not that it's just so regional, can lead to increased transmission and outbreaks. So is your message essentially, this is not just a city illness, this is a question of 
density and crowdedness and all that kind of stuff. Do you think also too, I, you know, I worry about this for my colleagues. I'm sure you do also the healthcare workers. Do you think also, somebody brought this up in another article that it's the viral load. I mean, when we have our, our colleagues who are working in emergency rooms and, you know, patient after patient, even, you know, let's say they're wearing their protective gear and, you know, they get exposed to one patient, then, you know, and maybe their body, let's say if it was a minor exposure, would be fighting it off, but they get exposed to another patient. Do you feel like, you know, is it a cumulative load in some ways? Um, you know, because I, I know so many people too are worried about very mild, what I'll call, you know, brief contacts, which I mean, we don't want anybody to let up on social precautions, but they're much, much less likely to have a problem than somebody that it's again, continually being exposed. Would you, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I think it's true for many infectious diseases. The size of the initial inoculum will determine the disease severity, not surprisingly. I mean, viruses start, you know, one virus particle will enter a cell, and then that'll make 100 or 1,000 virus particles and so on. If you're confronted initially with sort of 10 virus particles, you're, the length of time that it takes for that to become millions of virus particles is longer than if wow. you're infected with like 1,000 or 10,000 particles initially. So inoculum size obviously matters, and I think does make a difference for severity. So just like in chickenpox, you know, it's the, the second child in the house that really gets the more severe disease because they're exposed to a larger quantity of virus. Oh, interesting. Hmm. In your recollection, too, how did the Spanish flu finally come to an end? I mean, how did these things end? <laughs> I think you, you infect a susceptible cohort, and then you then that susceptible cohort has all gotten infected. In the case of Spanish flu, I think about 50 million people died in the world. The only thing was, the reason it was called Spanish flu was Spain was the first country to actually willing to admit that it actually was happening in their country. I mean, obviously, it was in many other countries at that time. It started in Kansas City, somebody said. Yeah, that, yeah that's right. Wow. And it was in World War I. I. I think the travel associated with World War I also sort of made that worse. Hmm. Well, as we're kind of winding down here, and again, I learned so much from talking to you. I, I really have one final key question. When do you think we'll feel comfortable or you'll feel comfortable going to a nice uh, restaurant in Philadelphia <laughs> you know, or getting on a plane to go to a meeting or vacation? What do you foresee <laughs> and, you know, is happening? I, I think that, that so there are a few factors at play. Summer may make a difference. You know, this is an envelope virus. Generally, winter respiratory envelope viruses don't do well over the summer. They don't do well in hot and humid conditions. Usually when you have respiratory spread, those small droplets accrete water or acquire water more in the humid thing, so it kind of drops down quicker. We'll see what happens over the summer. I, I am sure that it's going to be back in the fall. I can't imagine that wouldn't be true. In fact, I think it's never going to go away. I think we'll we'll just see lesser amounts of this over the summer, but it'll continue. And then it may come back worse of all. I think it depends for me on, on what happens. I live in Philadelphia. What happens in Philadelphia? You know, that's a population dense area. We're, you know, we're never going to really know. Forget testing. I mean, we've been talking about doing, you know, 5 million tests a day and 30 million tests a week for how many weeks now? I mean, forget it. The governors have been asking, this, forget it. It's not going to happen. The government doesn't care about this. They just talk about how great they've done, but they haven't done great and they're not going to do great. So I think, but that should never substitute for, good hygiene. I mean, I think, you know, wearing masks and washing your hands and trying to maintain social distance, that, that has to happen. Well, so, think, let, so let me ask you, I mean, do you foresee in the fall, let's just say, I don't know, maybe into 2021, going to a restaurant with your mask or having a QR code that says Dr. Paul Offit has been exposed and, you know, has protective antibodies? I'm, I'm honestly, I'm asking realistically. I mean, I, I think this is going to be a key thing. I mean, where people feel comfortable. I mean, 
something as basic as going to a, you know a restaurant or um, you know when you see on the planes now people are sitting rows apart is that going to be viable and what, what what's going to give everybody a little bit more sense of security it depends how it plays out i mean you know the last four or five days or so we've had fewer deaths each day that's good maybe that'll continue maybe it'll be 14 straight days maybe instead of having thousands of deaths We'll get the hundreds of deaths and then tens of deaths. And then, then people are going to feel a lot better. I mean, you know, flu kills, you know, 40, 50,000 people a year. Yet we don't go through this with flu. And I think the difference is there's two things that are going with this virus that scares the hell out of people. One is that you can get it from someone who's asymptomatic. Therefore, everybody right. is a potential threat. Right. And two, you can get it from surfaces. You know, and this, this virus has a, is, is spread more, more, has a greater reproducibility index, so-called R0, than does flu. I mean, flu is around two, meaning you'll infect two people a day. I think this virus is closer to six. That's, that's what's so scary about it. It is remarkably contagious. And, but I think it will settle. First of all, there'll be some population immunity. There may be a vaccine eventually. I mean, that's not going to happen this year. Maybe it'll happen by the middle of next year. We'll see. Um, that would help. But I, think, I, I do think it's going to settle down. And when it settles down, then I'll feel comfortable. Then I'll go to my favorite restaurants. But most importantly, I am a Philadelphia Eagles season ticket holder. Exactly. You know, well, well, Giants. I mean, you're right. We're going to just battle <laughs> this out on TV. But, you know, I'm going to share with you, because maybe you have connections with my, my multi-million dollar Shark Tank idea. You know, you're talking about contacting. And I said to myself, you know, I know I would feel safer when I'm wearing gloves. And obviously, you know, it was the winter recently. So wearing gloves is not a big deal. But I said, you know, I wonder if I wore like a lightweight pair of gloves, you know, like an athletic type of Nike gloves, that this way when I'm touching surfaces, I'm not directly touching. And wouldn't it be amazing, this is the million dollar idea, if it had some type of antiviral property or coating on it. And, you know, the funny thing was, I was looking up the history of, of gloves. Apparently in the early 1900s, it was quite a cool thing to wear gloves. Men and women, they all wore it. And it wasn't until I think World War I, when the materials got too expensive, that people stopped wearing them, you know, because it was really more for the laborers who didn't wear gloves, that it went out of fashion. So I could foresee wearing something like that on a regular basis if it protected me. I, I can share this with you too. Also, it's funny, I know one or two trips where I got sick, very ill with some type of bad virus when I traveled to Europe. And I know both times it looks like we used the bathroom on the plane. And I know those are viral havens. And ever since then, whenever I travel on a plane for years now, I've worn rubber gloves, not, not a mask, but rubber gloves. So I didn't touch anything in there. So I, I, I think, you know, again, I'm just trying to think for the public, like what we can do to make this a semi-more normal existence. I, I think you're right. I think, I think that things are going to change permanently. I think this was a permanently scarring event. I think people yes. are going to be slow to shake hands. I, I, I think they're going to see other people as a potential threat. For right. years, uh, you know, until this, this calms down. But I think you're, it's a good idea. You should take it to Shark Tank. I, yeah, I really need to. I need to find a good manufacturer. <laughs> and uh, anyway, well, this was again such an illuminating discussion, such a timely discussion. I hope all of my listeners really appreciate this. And if they have any questions, they can go to my Facebook page, Dean Mitchell MD, to uh, further pursue this. And again, I really appreciate that Dr. Paul often had time between CNN interviews and everything else to <laughs> come on to my podcast. You're always welcome. Thank you for your time. All right, Dean. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.